You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. And here we go again, ladies and gentlemen, it is Friday. I'm slapping stuff around over here. It is Friday. You know what that means? That means most of us don't have to work on Saturday, except I guess I, I kind of have to work a little bit. Um, I am actually pho- pho- photographing. <laughs> I can't even talk right now. I am uh, going to be a photographer for a wedding, so I'm photographing uh, a wedding this Saturday. And uh, I do that every once in a while for uh, some supplemental income. But uh, Sunday... The temperature is supposed to drop about 20 degrees here in Iowa. Uh, huge cold front coming through the area. It's supposed to rain all day Saturday, and this cold front's supposed to uh, stick around. So not only are we going to have the previous day is going to be a storm, we're going to have a rising barometer, we're going to have way cooler temperatures, and it's going to be windy. Um, I like a lot of wind, especially right after... Um, a storm comes and beats up the timber for a little bit. I get out of the timber and I let all that, I let everything kind of quiet down and get out of the wind. And I'm telling you, I've had good success um, hunting high wind, high wind days when the, um, the deer are um, probably not in their best bedding areas. They might be on their feet moving around a little bit more. Um, and uh, so I'm really excited to hunt Sunday. Not sure where I'm going to be hunting at yet. Probably pretty close to home. But then, man, I'm telling you, the middle of this month, the we're going to have a little bit of an Indian summer. We're talking 70, 75 degree days for the next, I'm going to say, 10 days of the month. And uh, it's going to, it's the hunting could be pretty crappy, just like, you know, it is most years. But um, I'm still going to get after it. I actually am going to have my first full weekend of hunting the 20th and 21st. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, probably just, a, you know, some more run and gun type sets. Looking forward to exploring uh, that new piece of property pretty more. Or pretty more. Man, I am all over the place today. But I'm not going to stop and I'm not going to edit because we're on a train tonight. And uh, we're going to be talking with Brian... Paul Bly, and uh, Brian is going to talk about his evolution as a hunter, uh, especially from gun to bow and then compound to trad, and it sounds to me that uh, once he went trad, he never looked back, um, except now he's exploring western type hunting and is probably going to start picking up the compound a little bit more so that's what we're going to talk about today in today's podcast uh and it's pretty exciting really cool story this uh this is a hunter profile podcast i know you guys uh love those so let's get into it but before we get into it uh, i recently sat down with skip from gearhead archery it's the bow i'm shooting this year and i asked him what is so awesome basically about the unique riser design of their bows? Well, the gearhead riser design is so unique because of its construction. I mean, who else takes two side plates 
in uh, horizontal members and creates a structure that becomes a riser that is stronger than any other riser on the market. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to grasp what they're looking at, but as they're driving down the road, you see structures that emulates a lot what our riser is like with bridges and cell towers and, and cranes and anything that's meant to take heavy loads. Um, that's what our riser does. It, it takes heavy loads. It's very precise. So from a hunting standpoint, you're, you're starting with the base of your bow that is just as precise and accurate as you can make it. And there you have it. If you guys want to find out more information about gearhead bows, visit gearheadarchery.com. Trust me when I tell you this, guys. This bow design looks crazy. And I was the I was the first, you know, skeptic at their door. But then after shooting it and shooting a lot lately, this bow is more than just a unique look. Uh, so definitely find one and go shoot it. If you guys have any questions about this bow, um, call Skip at Gearhead, and uh, I, I guarantee you he'll either call you back or send you an email. So uh, there's that. But now let's get into this Friday edition of Hunter Profile Podcast with Brian Hallbly. All right, today's guest on the podcast is Brian Hallbly. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? You know, uh, I'm pretty excited as, I think it was, yeah, Saturday night I got to go out and hunt. And uh, on a brand new piece of property, I did a run and gun, um, hang and hunt type of deal. And I ended up uh, seeing my first... I'm going to call him a shooter right now. I don't know. He was like 70, 80 yards out. He looked like a four-year-old 150 class, and that's a shooter in my book for sure. Um, so I saw my first shooter this year, so that uh, that uh, put a smile on my face. Have you been out hunting at all yet this year? I have. I was fortunate to get out. We have an early season around the city of Pittsburgh in southwest Pennsylvania. It's um, Unit 2B. I was able to get out and fortunate to take a doe on opening morning which was oh, nice. uh, september 16th and that's uh like a city limits hunt it is it used to be called a special regulation area but they sort of uh widened it once they changed it the management unit cover used to be county by county but now it's it, it includes a couple counties now right right um so kind of transitioning into that do you live in pennsylvania i do I okay. What part of Pennsylvania? Southwest Pennsylvania, just outside of the city of Pittsburgh. Okay. So, are you a Steelers fan then? Uh, I'm too big on the NFL these days. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Um, so, what what's your day job? What do you do for a living? I'm a police officer in a small town west of Pittsburgh. Okay. So, I have a I had a buddy who was a small town cop. And, you know, their city budget was really, you know, fairly small. So there wasn't very many police. They didn't have very many resources. But because his small town was next to a big town, similar to the situation that you live in, um, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of crime that would every once in a while overflow into his small town. Do you see that coming from a small town near a big town? Uh, we do. Uh, there's really no towns that are immune to that anymore. But uh, fortunately, uh, Jack Nicholas, the big-time golfer, came through and uh, designed a golf course and put it up on the mountain here probably about 20 years ago. So uh, they put up all kind of big houses and all the property values went up. So we're, we're fortunate to have a uh, middle- and upper-class community. Gotcha. So we don't have a lot of the problems that the bigger cities see, but we still get some overflow. Gotcha. Gotcha. So do you got any cool police stories for us? <laughs> yeah, I keep telling my wife I'm going to write a book when I retire. <laughs> so share one with us. Share, share like one of the craziest things that you've ever had to do while you've been a cop on the on duty. Craziest thing I ever had to do. Wow, you're putting me on the spot here. I I like all jacked up to talk about hunting and these big bucks on my Ohio farm. I got to throw you a curveball, man. No doubt. No doubt. Well, like I said, fortunately, I've been in the in the quieter area, so I don't have anything that's too crazy. 
But uh, yeah, thank you. You got you got me. You got me so baffled what, here. So what do you have to deal with mostly? Just like speeding tickets and jaywalkers, or like people arguing over parking spots? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that. I got promoted to sergeant back in 2008, so I've got a lot of administrative stuff to do nowadays. But uh, being a small being a small department, I'm I'm still on the road answer calls but uh gotcha yeah it, it's not too terrible but uh one thing that comes to mind um we had a uh, individual that had some issues um had some mental problems and uh it was just you know a small woodlot down the road from where i live i live in the town that i police in and uh i've actually hunted in these woods and uh this gentleman had some uh reactions from his medication and he was having some really bad mental problems, so I uh, had to go out and look for him, and a couple other officers were looking for him. So I found this one trail that I'm familiar with that wasn't far from his house, and I thought, well, that'd be the uh, closest place as any for him to head into. So I walked up into the trail, and uh, he was he was definitely uh, having some issues and wanted to fight me. Well, unfortunately, as as we're squaring off, I didn't even realize this one part of the woods, there was a big drop off over there. And as I, I turned to square off with him to try to stop him, he just disappeared. And I'm like, what the heck just happened? Well, here he slipped and fell over this embankment. Thankfully he wasn't seriously injured. He made a full recovery, but that, that was a, that was a pretty strange, <laughs> strange happening. It just like, he just disappeared. Right. Right, man, that's crazy. Yeah, I tell you what, I don't know. Um, there has to be like with a with a police officer, there's got to be some kind of patience that you have to, you know, if someone's cussing you out and talking shit on you and like spitting in your face and, and you know, just like not necessarily spitting in your face, but like just treating you like human garbage. You have to sit there. There's a, there's a part of you that has to sit there and take it when you're probably thinking, man, I would love to just tase this guy. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's the one thing a lot of people miss when they, they see the highlights on the news. There's there's almost a million police officers in the country. Last time I looked, I think it's like 800,000 or 900,000. And we're just like any other cross-section of society. You might have 1% that aren't good people, and that's no matter if you have teachers or priests, but the overwhelming majority, like teachers and priests and policemen, we're pretty good dudes and we're just out there trying to keep everybody safe and get back to our families every night. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, uh, myself and along with the, probably a lot of the listeners of this podcast, thank you for doing what you do. I mean, it takes a lot of guts to do that. We appreciate that. We've got a lot of people in our community that are really good to us and remind us every day too. So we're thankful for that. Absolutely. Now we can talk about deer hunting. How about that? <laughs> Sounds great. All right. So did you always live on the west side of Pennsylvania? I mean, were you born and raised there? I was. I grew up on the east side of Pittsburgh in a town called Monroeville. And then uh, once I got married and got a job on the west side of Pittsburgh, I moved over that way. I've been here most of my life. I uh, was gone for a few years when I entered the Air Force. Spent some time in North Dakota, Texas, New Jersey, and then uh, moved back here and got married. Nice, nice. And um, and I take it that hunting has been a big part of your life ever since the beginning? No question. Yeah, it's, it's been a big part of my family's life. My grandfather's and my father always went. And uh, I can remember being, back in those days, they didn't have men or youth hunts and different age classes. You had to be 12 years old to hunt in Pennsylvania. And I can just remember, couldn't wait to turn 12. When I turned like 10 or 11, I remember my dad would let me tag along, but there was nothing compared to when you turn 12 and get to go. Right. Right. So was there a lot of tradition in your family as far as, you know, like gun hunting or bow hunting? Uh, I mean, was it something that you guys did religiously or was, was it something that was kind of just, eh, we'd like to go every once in a while. It was probably more once in a while early on. My dad and his brothers were gun hunters for the most part. They did have a uh, old bear recurve in the garage. When, when I was old enough to pull that thing back, I used to go out there and shoot cardboard boxes in the backyard and 
uh, growing up watching Fred Bear on the uh, American Sports, when I think it was called, on ABC. You wanted yeah. to be just like that guy, going on all those crazy trips. And uh, I sort of developed into a bow hunter on my own because my dad wasn't a big bow hunter, but uh, he definitely always made time to take us hunting and fishing and camping, and that's sort of where the seed grew. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you started hunting when you were 12. Was that with a gun or a bow? And and how did that transition go? Because, you know, we're going to get into your, your trad and compound days later on in your life. But talk to us a little bit about how, I guess, you were introduced into it as far as, you know, with a gun and then how you kind of transitioned from that into archery. Yeah, definitely. Uh I can remember it like yesterday. I went to a gun show here in Pennsylvania with my dad. He bought me a uh, uh, Remington 700 243. I still have that gun. In fact, my daughter shot some different game with it. And uh, that's how we started out, going to the state game lands around southwest Pennsylvania, which thankfully there's still a lot of them here, a lot of good places to hunt still. And uh, I know public's a big important thing for you guys and we're always talking about fighting and putting your money where your mouth is and and uh we're, we're we're appreciative to have that kind of public land in pennsylvania too right so was this public ground that you were that you started hunting on back in the day like when you started hunting was it really packed and crowded and did you notice an increase over the years of more people coming to that or is there enough where it just kind of evenly is everybody gets their own little piece. It wasn't too crazy early on because uh, back in those days, most of the guys had deer camps up in northern Pennsylvania. So guys would travel three, four hours to places like uh, uh, McCain County and uh, Smithport up that way, uh, Oil City, Clarion County. That's where all the deer were perceived to be were up in the mountains of, of Pennsylvania. And there was definitely a bigger herd up that way back in the day and uh, not as many around the city, but that's kind of flip-flop now. Right. So there's, uh, there's, has there always been, I mean, when you were growing up, you know, in your first couple times out hunting, I get, what was it like? Uh, were you, were you hunting with your dad? Were you seeing a lot of deer? Yeah, we would go to the, um, game lands, in the southwest part of Pennsylvania and some of the state parks that allow rifle hunting. And, uh, yeah, we'd see, we'd see pretty good groups of deer. Uh, most of the time we would just go take a walk in the woods with the rifle and dad would fall asleep on the, against the tree. And we'd see a couple big ones and try to bump them down his way. Then we'd get down there and he'd be snoring and <laughs> mostly came back with just stories, but that, that's what it was all about then. Right, absolutely. Now, how old were you when you harvested your first deer? Uh, it took me a while. I uh, got into high school and got into sports. Uh, started playing hockey in junior high and played that through high school. And uh, hunting took a little bit of a backseat. I'd still go out occasionally, but uh, more interested in sports and friends and girls and yep. you know the whole high school thing. So that kind of took a backseat for a while. And then uh, I started picking it up, especially the bow, in uh, while I was stationed in North Dakota in the Air Force and uh, got real serious about it when I got home. So how, when when did you shoot your first deer with a gun? How old were you? Uh, I was 16. 16, okay. And uh, was that like an experience that you shared with your dad? Uh, I mean, was it, it was. At, okay, all right. Walk, walk me through that first, that first ton if you can remember it. Yeah, First definitely. Kill. Yeah, we uh, walked up, up from the parking lot. I can remember the uh, game lands that we were on. They had a uh, road cutting up this uh, side hill. Got up to this uh, ridge overlooking the river bottom, and uh, I can remember the deer coming through, down through the river bottom, and probably it seemed like you know 500 yards at that time, but. Uh, I think it was something like 140 yards then, a little more open area, and a uh, small buck come down through. And, you know, back in those days in Pennsylvania, they, they classified their deer as antlered or antlerless, and if they were more than 
three inches and it was a buck and everybody would say, Hey, if you get your buck this year, you get your buck this year. And if it was over three inches, everybody was happy to shoot it. There was, there was no QDM or uh, let them walk or let them get big back then. But yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a good shot. I felt like it was probably lucky at the time, although I, I thought I practiced a good bit, but uh, you know, little four point, nothing nothing great in today's standards but boy as a 16 year old your first year it's it's pretty exciting right absolutely um you know after you pulled the trigger and realized hey i just shot my first buck can you remember what kind of thoughts were going through your head you know what did your dad have to say what was it like walking up uh to that animal for the first time and and you know dressing it right there in the field yeah it's just it's like finally like you dream about that, you know, as, as a, as a small child and a, as a, uh, you know, 10 year old kid saying, I can't wait till I turn 12 and just all the anticipation and all the near misses and you know, a couple of years of going and not getting anything. And it, it just all comes full circle and it's just so satisfying. Right. Right. So did you harvest, you know, the rest of high school and then you went into the, um, the air force I mean, were you successful every year with a gun from, from the time that you, uh, um, you know, when you were 16 all the way up through high school before you left for the air force? Not, not really. It was, there were pretty few and far between at that time. Gotcha. Gotcha. So basically you, you went just more of a, of a tradition and just to enjoy the outdoors. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So you go to you go to North Dakota. You're stationed there. How many years were you stationed in North Dakota? I lived there almost two years. Okay, um, is that when you started to pick up the bow then, or was it after? Yeah, that? yeah. I, I I messed around with it a little bit here and there. My dad had some old uh, uh, compounds and recurves that I messed around with, and he he wasn't a bow hunter, so he really couldn't offer me a lot. But he. Uh, had the equipment and I, I tried it out in the backyard but uh when i first got to north dakota i had a, a tech sergeant that was a big bow hunter and we got to talking about hunting and i said yeah i got a bow at home and he says oh you should have your mom trip it out here and that's what i ended up doing so so how old were you at this point 1920 yeah i was uh 19 at okay that point. and what was what was the North hunting in North Dakota like at that point in the area? I mean, was it a, a world different than what you were used to in Pennsylvania? Oh, no question. There was very few trees up there in Minot, North Dakota, where the Air Force Base is. And uh, it was all flat country, windy, and the, the, the hunting was all going, finding these little uh, shelter belts along you know, out in the middle of nowhere, there'd be thousands and thousands of acres of farms, just open ground. And then just one little strip of shelter belt that all the deer would be in. Right. So was it, was it pretty easy to locate deer there? It was easy to locate them, but you know, back then learning about bow hunting, you just thought, Oh, well, all the deer are in this uh, shelter belt, I'm just going to walk in there and sit down and shoot one when it comes past well you know you're not paying attention to the wind you're not paying attention to your scent right that, that didn't work out too well gotcha so were you were you successful in north dakota while you were stationed there at all i did shoot a uh mule deer doe one time oh, nice. was total walk with a bow total or walk. with your with your gun yeah I was with my bow cool cool so you had a you had a doe was that the, was that the only time you ever shot a um, that was that your first deer with a bow then it was it was okay so at this time you shot a deer when you were 16 and then uh, a deer when you were 19 right um, right and then was that it while you were in north dakota yeah that was it it was uh you know tough to get out get away to go hunting with all of our uh schedules and everything that that went on with uh everything that comes to being in the military Right. So uh, that that was the only harvest I had. Okay. So you, you kind of, you know, you were you were somewhat you you enjoyed hunting, but it sounds to me at this time in your life you weren't like obsessed with it like a lot of guys are. Um, right. Yeah. 
Right. When did you hit that obsessed button? When did it become like a passion for you? Well, after I got into uh, bow hunting in North Dakota and got that doe, I started reading a lot more. I started getting a lot more hunting magazines and, and uh, getting pumped up about it and talking to my brother. And, and he says, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get into bow hunting too. When you get home, we'll, we'll get some bows. And uh, we were pretty fortunate at the time. My Uncle Tom had a uh, fishing and hunting shop back in the day before all the big box stores. And uh, I came home and we went over and he got the catalogs out and we ordered some bows and tree stands and we were going to go conquer the world. Yeah. So, and, and what year was that roughly? Uh, that would have been 1995. Okay. 1995, you, you moved back, you, you got some tree stands, you, you got a, a new bow set up. Um, what, uh, what was your plan of attack? I mean, were you still hunting a lot of public ground? Had, had things changed uh, as far as the deer and the land, uh, when you moved back to Western Pennsylvania? Yeah, definitely. We, we had started hearing from friends and, and, and seeing magazine articles, the, the suburban deer population where we live had, had exploded over the last, you know, five, eight years at that point. And guys were killing some giant bucks, you know, in the neighborhoods that we grew up in and in, in the surrounding neighborhoods. So, yeah. uh, we started, we started hunting some local spots around, mom's house mom and dad's house and uh, started to trial trial and error you know trying to trying to learn how to bow hunt trying to learn how to play the wind right so in you know you're starting to learn in hang on one second i'm sorry no problem i'm sure, I'm sure you can hear my son let's see what time is it it's 12 20 36 Okay. So you, when you got back from, uh, North Dakota, you started your bow hunting in, well, was it like city limits or was it, uh, like subdivisions? Uh, where did you start doing all of this hunting? Yeah, it's, it's more suburban area, uh, outside of the city. Um, Western Pennsylvania is, is pretty rugged. So we, we've got some foothills of the Appalachians here. And, okay. uh, so they don't have, most places don't have houses on top of houses on top of houses. There'll be like a housing plan and then a mountain and then another housing plan and then another mountain. And when I say mountain, I'm talking Appalachian mountains are not giant mountains, but you know, rolling hills and, uh, pro- provided a lot of good cover for deer and they, the, the population really exploded here. Right. So then, um, I, I guess, where did you start? I mean, did you start by knocking on people's doors to gain permission or was there actually public ground that weaved in and out of all this? Yeah, we would uh, stop and ask permission. We'd, we'd even get so crazy as to pull into like a, a factory that would have, you know, 10 acres of ground behind them. We'd stop and talk to the guy and say, hey, okay, if we bow hunt back there and they're like, bow hunt? Yeah, they'd like laugh at you. Like, yeah, as long as you're not shooting guns back there, <laughs> knock yourself out. So how did your first, how did your first couple of years, you know, getting into serious bow hunting? I mean, did you, at that point, did you take it really serious? Were you like doing a lot of scouting? Were you running trail cameras at all? I guess back then trail cameras were probably just coming out in like 95 or if they were out, they were, you know, pretty medieval. I still have my trail timer. I don't know if you remember what those things were with the string and the digital yep. clock and the, and the, you know, you would think of, oh, we'll hope that a deer trips this wire and sets the time off, but who knows, it could have been a groundhog or whatever, but that was the greatest <laughs> thing back then. Right. Did that ever work for you where it's like, well, something came through here at, you know, 6 a.m. I'm pumped to go see what it is. Yeah, that's, that's basically all it was, was a hope and a prayer. Yeah. But, uh, that, that was back, you know, the early nineties, um, the, the VHS hunting videos were, were really big and Dan Fitzgerald and uh, a little bit later the Drury brothers started coming out and my brother and I were just obsessed. We were watching all the videos, we were reading all the magazine articles and 
Right. And we're like, we're going we're gonna to figure this out, man. We're, we're, we're going crazy. We're, we're going into the woods and we're sitting here and we're seeing deer, but we're not getting close enough. And we're moving our stands and trying to learn about scent control. And it, it was a pretty big learning curve. Right. Right. So when you moved, when you moved there, uh, and you know, you started hunting all these areas again, you got permission, you started getting into somewhat of a routine. How long did it take you to become successful in this new suburban type hunting setting? I think it was two or three seasons before I finally shot a doe. And I'll never forget it. It was at uh, Moraine state park over here in Southwest Pennsylvania, just North of Pittsburgh. And, um, uh, my parents have a little camp at this campground uh, called Slippery Rock Campground. And uh, we would go up there and stay for the weekend. It was like a big adventure, you know, get away from the suburbs and go up to the country here and stay in the camper. And then we started getting real serious and we're like, okay, we found these spots on the other side of the lake. And if we take our canoe over there, there's no roads, there's no people. And then, then we started seeing some more mature bucks and we started thinking, boy, this, this, this could really happen. Right. So you, you, uh, you started getting comfortable and then you started getting a little bit more adventurous with your strategy. Right. Right. Okay. So at this time, how old are you? Like early twenties, mid twenties? Yeah. Getting up into the early twenties, mid twenties. Yep. Okay. And I guess, what were you thinking at that point? Were you thinking, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot the very first deer that walks by, or are you going to shoot? Are you going to, you know, start waiting for these bucks because, you know, you're watching some of these videos, you've been doing some reading and you start, you know, all of a sudden, you know what, I'm going to start waiting for big antlers or big mature bucks. No, those early days, we just wanted to get some under our belt. So that, that second or third season, that doe came by at Marine State Park, I, I made a, a high spot on it, a high shot on her and spined her. And yeah. uh, that, that was the first first one i was able to get back here home with a bow nice so then you know the the seasons after that was it just more of the same you know it's browning down it's browning down you know first deer that walks by or at what point did you start maybe trying to hunt specific deer or go out and kill doe or uh kill bucks it wasn't for a while we we were still cutting our teeth on uh you know some uh one and a half year old bucks maybe a little basket six point or eight point and then from there you'd, you'd say okay i'd like to try to hold off for a, a little a better buck and then uh you know you, you get to that point and it's just it's just a, a long process just to get to that get a few under your belt right so after you got a few under your belt i mean how old were you was that did that go on for like another 10 years uh when did you start you know trying to or when did you get really serious about it yeah i'd say i'd say it probably took uh when i started getting into my uh, late 20s early 30s i was i was killing a bunch of two and a half year old bucks with a compound and you know religiously getting that every year and and, you know some for this area at the time you you were killing better bucks than most guys were killing because it was still that mentality of you know, hey, I got my buck this year. It didn't matter what it was. And right. so you're killing a two-and-a-half-year-old 10-point at, you know, maybe maybe 80 inches, but you're, you're really excited about it. And after after you kill, you know, every season you start killing them and you think, you know what, I need something more challenging. Yeah. So what did you do to make it more challenging? That's when I started getting into the traditional bows more. Okay. So you, you, you didn't really go up in age class or anything. You, you just kind of took a, a, a sideways step and changed your weapon of choice. Right. And you said, okay, right, well, I want right. to, I want to, I want to shoot a trad bow now. Right. Cause back then you would see some bigger bucks once in a great while, but you just, you always had that mentality that everybody else had like, Oh, there's just not big bucks in Pennsylvania. So, right. you know, it wasn't a priority. You're just like, okay, I'm killing all these two and a half year olds with the compound let me challenge myself a little bit here and, and then the shooting some long bows. Gotcha. At this point, were you taking any, any out of state trips or were you just kind of focused on Pennsylvania? No, I was still staying in Pennsylvania at that time. Okay. All right. So 
you started shooting a trad bow. Um, did did you like it? Did you decide to that you went full bore into it, or was that something you kind of eased into where you were shooting a trad bow fifty percent and then a compound fifty percent? Yeah, I was going back and forth until I got really comfortable. In fact, it took a long time before I felt comfortable enough to get up into a tree and uh, try to shoot at an animal with it. And uh, a lot of my mentors back then would say, you know, practice on a pie plate. Get a get a paper plate or a pie plate, put it on your hay bale, and when you can hit consistently at 20 yards with your longbow, then you can get up in your tree stand and shoot at a deer. Right. So then how old were you? the very first season that you sh- that you went out and hunted with a trad bow uh, let me do the math real quick here that would have been uh probably 1999 so i'd have been uh 26 okay so 26 years old was your first year as a as a trad bow how long until you harvested your first deer with trad equipment it was the second season. Uh, I was hunting on a, uh, uh, at this point, I had a uh, job with the police department here where I'm at now. And I, I moved to the west side of Penn, uh, Pittsburgh, in between Pittsburgh and the Ohio line. And uh, there were still like maybe 15, dozen, 15 family farms still all around this area when I first moved out here. So I got uh, to know the one farmer down the road here, and I'd go and help him at harvest time before I had any kids, and I had lots of time. You remember those days? <laughs> yeah, I hear that. And um, he said, hey, yeah, if you want to hunt here, you're welcome to. And uh, I think it was the second season. I, I got set up in a uh, – it was – you know, I didn't have any restrictions on myself. I was just going to shoot any legal deer just because it was my first harvest with a longbow and a uh, – Six point come down the trail, offered me a perfect broadside shot at like 12 yards, and I took it and made a good shot. How different was that for you from like a, you know, your career as bow hunting? How was that different for you uh, to kill that animal with a trad bow as far as uh, compared to a compound? Yeah, absolutely, because it, it got to the point, like I said, where the challenge seemed to be diminishing because it was like I had the compound bow and I had the uh, trigger release and the sights and it got to be routine where the two and a half would come down put the pin on the shoulder pull the trigger okay not not to make it that simple or to diminish it because I was still proud of all those and I fed my family with them and I still love the experience but it just just felt like you needed to challenge yourself more right right um so so then how how many years did you continue to shoot a trad bow? I mean, did, did you ever have a season where you specifically shot trad and didn't pick up your compound at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I did that for probably, oh, uh, the next seven, eight years. Oh, okay. So up into your mid-30s. Right. Okay. So then you you you, the next step the evolution of almost every trad guy that i've ever talked to is hey i want to learn how to build my own equipment um and i've talked with some of the guys from trad geeks and that that was kind of some of the same progression that they went through too you know hey we want to shoot trad then we want to try to build our own bows or they you know do our own arrows or whatever you know um you decided to start looking into building your own bows. Talk us through that. Yeah, definitely. It started out with uh, making your own arrows for me. Uh, that, that was like a, a simple way to get into building your own equipment. Uh, easy and cheap way to get started. Um, but you but you sort of start going backwards when, you, when you're getting and challenging yourself. You're like, okay, I, I killed something with a bow that I bought at the store, now I'm going to make my own arrow. Then you kill something with an arrow that you made yourself, and you're like, okay, I'm going to make a quiver for those arrows. Then the natural progression is just end up building your own bow. And uh, at that time, the internet had started to come really alive with all the hunting forums and uh, different places you can go to get information. So I started 
going to different websites and forums that were specifically targeted for building your own bows and just trying to soak up as much information as I could. Right. So how did your first build go? I mean, was it a learning experience with a lot of mistakes or, or was it more of a, you know, I'm just going to follow someone else's directions and, and I don't know, basically do what's, you know, emulate what someone else has done. Right. Now there was a fellow named uh, Dean Torges. He wrote a book called hunting the Osage bow. Unfortunately, Dean passed away recently. Uh, It's a big loss for the traditional archery community, but he sure left a legacy for everybody with this book and his website and some of his videos and things. So I, I tried to copy his directions from his book for that first bow that I built. Right. And how'd it turn out for you? It looked really pretty. That's the big difference. <laughs> <laughs> the big difference between taking a single piece of wood from a tree and trying to make it bend without breaking. That's a whole nother story. Right. So, you know, it looked good. I mean, walk me through that. Did, did you literally just did it break come apart in your hand or just it was just never consistent it was out of whack what was the deal yeah the tiller which is the the even arc of the of the bow which it should be even anyway the tiller wasn't wasn't ever right and i tried it right and it seemed okay and it shot i probably shot you know 10 20 dozen arrows through it and just one day it just broke at the handle where where most most rookies starter bows do yeah yeah so what did you learn from that that process well you try to read as much as you can but uh i don't know about you but i I learned from hands-on experience Uh, i can read stuff and i can sort of get an understanding but if i actually go and watch somebody do it or watch a video uh it it makes a hundred percent difference so I, i found a couple guys on these bow building forums that were local who had had some success and we started getting together at our shops, taking turns at our bow shops, and that really helped things along quickly. Yeah. Yep. So you got into a you got into it sounds like an, a, another little community, right? A community right, of right. other trad guys, um, and you, you shared a lot of information. Did you then start? I mean, did you then start working on your second, third, fourth bow? And then, I mean, did you ever? I mean, did you ever get to a point where you ended up building a bow and it worked out awesome and you were able to use it out in the field? Yes, yes. It, it took a few bows. I think the first two or three uh, were failures, but then I started having some success. And then uh, once I started getting better with the single-piece wooden bow, and what I mean by that is you take a uh, piece of a tree, they call it a stave, that you split out from a log and you make a bow out of a single piece of wood. Then we got into laminating bows, different pieces of wood laminated together. And then we progressed into fiberglass backing, which is more measurement and scientific than it is old school craft. Right. Right. So is that a direction that you ended up going was with that, the fiberglass backing? I still continue to build both, but uh, the most the most consistent ones I had success with was the was the uh, fiberglass laminated ones. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, in 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 this email that you ended up sending me, this is where it kind of goes cr- a little awkward, you know, different for you, right? I mean, you you fell in love with the trad life. It sounds like you started building your bows, um, and, and and really diving in deep to that trad lifestyle. Um, you ended up starting a magazine. Why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, we were trying to find a centralized source of information, and there was a couple books out at the time, but they were all specific to like different bows sets. Like uh, Dean Tordish's bow was for self bows, which which is another word for a single piece of wood bow. And then there'd be one about building laminated bows with fiberglass but there was never like a centralized resource just with information on that and guys would say you know and when when you're getting into this stuff it's kind of like now when we go to the ata shows back then it's like we got to go to every traditional gathering they have and see what's what and guys would continually talk about 
boy, it'd be great to have a centralized resource like a magazine or something. So I got to talking with some guys that were in publication at these different trad shows that I'd go to and uh, just started getting some ideas and the, and the wheels were turning and I couldn't get it out of my mind. So I came home one day and I, I said to my wife, I said, I'm thinking about starting a bow building magazine. And she just gave me that same look she always does when I come up with some crazy idea, but she stands behind me every time. So we went for it. And <laughs> next thing I know, the Bowyer's Journal was born and uh, within a couple of issues, we had subscribers in like three countries. All right. So what was the name of it, uh, name of it again? The Bowyer's Journal. The Boyer's Journal. Yes, sir. Okay. So you started, you know, you started uh, doing this magazine thing. How, to me, a magazine, like I run a blog and a podcast and, you know, if I wanted it to, that could take up a lot more time than what it already does. What? No uh, but a magazine, I think, is because it's not digital, there's more steps, I feel, and you have to have, you know, a, a schedule where everything has to be in place or you're going to miss deadlines type of thing. Um, what, is, what is running a magazine like? Oh, it's it's absolutely insane. And if I knew what it was like going into it, I would have never gotten into it. There's, there's no question about that. This was uh, 2005. I just had my uh, first child in 2002. And then... Uh, just trying to balance all that with work and family and raising kids and then adding this magazine to it. It, it was, it was an eye opening experience, but we made it work. So then with this, uh, with this magazine starting to take off, um, you know, you, it was busy, you made it work, but, but did you then, I mean, you can only take it so far, right? I, I, I mean, you mentioned that someone decided to come up and buy this magazine from you, right? Right, right. I, right. I had made the decision after four years of publishing that just just what you said. I, I took it as far as I felt comfortable going because the next step was hiring some employees, expanding it to places that I wouldn't even know where to go with it. Right. And... Was that a was that an easy decision for you to make to sell it? Because um, I've talked to a guy before who actually ran a magazine, but it was not outdoor based at all. It was um, for like crops, like a farming type magazine. Right. And he said he he was so busy that he kind of hated it, but at the same time he didn't want to see it go because he had built this thing from scratch. Did you have like the those kind of feelings? Oh, I couldn't have said it any better. And, and, and the doors that it opened, and, and, and what I mean by that is specifically the relationships that I developed with people all over the all over the world, for that matter. I, I got invited to hunt some of the most beautiful places around the country and just some of the, the sweetest people. And that that's what I missed the most about it. Right, right. But eventually you did it. And um, I take it it was uh, – the, that time and the money that you put into it, you definitely got back out of it. I was happy with the deal. No, no right. question. Um, I decided to put it up for sale in 2008. Uh, and the publisher from Wisconsin bought it. In fact, he's still running it today. He changed the name to trad archers world. It's still on some newsstands and you can still get it delivered to your house. Wow. Well, you sold the magazine, right? And that, and that opened up some different doors for you, right? Absolutely. All right. So after you sold this magazine, how old were you when you sold the magazine? That was 2008. Let me think here. Uh, 33, 34. Okay. So you ended up, you know, and from, from my perspective, that's still, that's fairly young for someone to start a magazine, run it four years, and then sell it. Um, right. you're, you're 33 years old. You just got your magazine, you know, your company basically purchased from you. You got a real good deal. What happened? I mean, and you're still, 
this whole time you're still a police officer, right? Still a police officer, right? Still a police officer. To the, to this day, you're still a police officer, right? That's correct. Okay, so you sold this magazine. What other doors open for you at this point? I mean, I take it now there's a huge vacuum because there's there's all this time you're putting into this magazine that you now have nothing going on, right? Well, I've got two daughters, so okay. I wouldn't say nothing, but right. uh, yeah, definitely. I, 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 you're right on that aspect. Right. So what, uh, what went down after, after you sold that magazine? Well, a little backstory. A uh, gentleman I met from uh, traditional archery named Doug Schlebaugh, he invited me out to hunt his farm in Ohio, which is uh, living in western Pennsylvania. I'm literally... 15 minutes to the border of Ohio and West Virginia for that matter. Right. So I, uh, took him up on that offer and it's just like a different world. Just, just, uh, half an hour drive from here. Yeah. So you started hunting not only Pennsylvania, but Ohio as well. Right. So right. hunting Ohio started seeing the caliber of deer that were being taken over there and, and, you know, after I got set up and was hunting with him, I was seeing some of these deer and just thought, wow, this is, this is crazy. So, you you know, your initial reaction was a good, a good reaction. Like, Hey, I should have been hunting Ohio 10 years ago. Right. Um, so you then started hunting Ohio every year. Um, any other out of state trips at that time? Yeah. Throughout the years with the magazine, I was really fortunate to, uh, about 16 states. Um, the, the most interesting one was, I don't know if you remember a, a news broadcaster by the name of Tom Brokaw. Yep. I hunted elk, I hunted elk on his ranch in Montana. Uh, turns out the, the manager of that ranch was, uh, a big time traditional guy. And I, I became friends with him over the years. And, um, the Brokaws were really generous with donating a hunt. And I, I was fortunate to uh, donate to St. Jude's and, and make a really nice donation and ended up getting a hunt in an incredible place. Oh, nice. Yeah. I actually watched a story, um, or some kind of documentary about Tom Brokaw and his property. He's, I think he's a big pheasant hunter, isn't he? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. Does he do any big game hunting? I, Cause I know he has a lot of big game on his property. Yeah, I, I know that he he does some of it. I don't know if he's really serious about it. Gotcha. Does does he run an outfitting business on his property then as well? He does not. No, he does it's not. Just, okay. just sort of uh, like once in a while, him and his wife will donate a hunt to some different organizations to raise some money. Got gotcha. What what state's that in? That's in Montana. Montana. Okay. Right. So. There, there's a period of time where you start, you know, you jump across the border into Ohio, but at the same time, you're traveling to these 16 other states. Um, are you hunting just whitetail or did you expand your species list as well? No, I tell you, I got hooked on uh, hunting South Texas and hunting the wild boars and the javelinas. And that just, that got in my craw and it's, it's just been something that I haven't been able to shake. I was just down there. In uh, March of this year, I shot four boars, and I think we've got maybe three or four quarters left in the freezer. My family just mows through the wild boar. It's incredible. Yeah, tastes good, then I take it. Oh, delicious. Right. Okay. Now, with with these with these other states, uh, was it all whitetail then? No, I, I sort of went after a mixed bag of everything. I was trying to... Uh, get everything that I could take advantage of. I've tried uh, mule deer hunting. I've tried elk hunting. Uh, very few, very few whitetail trips out west. Gotcha. Any antelope? No, that's one thing I've never had a chance to do. Okay, so elk and mule deer over these uh, additional states. Um, were you successful in your in those adventures? No, I was still shooting traditional at the time when I was going after them. Um, that time on Brokaw's ranch in Montana, uh, my buddy and I glassed a really good old mule deer, nice rack, mature deer, probably, probably a good mile or two away. 
and uh, stalked all the way up. He was laying in his bed. I actually took my boots off in the last 50 yards, got within like 25 yards with the longbow, felt comfortable. The release felt good. The arrow stuck in the ground. I mean, it had to ruffle some hair on his belly, and he jumped up and took off running. Oh. But it was it was exciting. It was really exciting. Right. So even with those some of those western hunts where you know you're going to be taking a longer shot, you decided I'm gonna you're going to keep it trad and and uh, try to do it the hard way. Yeah. At the time when I was running the magazine, I was pretty dedicated to it, trying to get. Uh, pictures and experiences for the magazine and everything else going on gotcha so but you sold the magazine when you were roughly 33 in 2008 so then now you now you've had like roughly nine years to you're not you're not running that magazine anymore so were those western trips those you know where you went to those 16 other states was that only when you were running the magazine or was any of that afterwards i still continued to hunt ohio and texas for wild boars a lot okay uh the the western hunting start started slowing down and uh but i i was able to take a lot of game with my longbow a lot of a lot of wild boars a lot of javelina some whitetails um but then it was it was getting to the point where it was like, okay, what's the next challenge? I've right. done all this. I've I've killed some game with this style. So it was like, what's going to be the next chapter here? So what was the next chapter? Well, at that time, I, I'd been hunting Ohio pretty seriously, and, and these mature deer were starting to really get to me. And I decided, after talking with my wife, we were able to – uh, buy a small 25-acre piece of property in uh, eastern Ohio and uh, started learning about food plots and um, setting up farms different ways. I think the juries call it uh, wildlife landscaping or something like that. And uh, just just taking that challenge on. Right. So you purchased 40, 40 acres in Ohio? The first property was 25 acres. 25. Then you snowballed it, right. and you bought another property with 40 acres. Yeah, I was fortunate because I got the mineral rights with 25 acres, and within a couple of years, let's see, that was uh, 2007, I purchased that property. And then within a couple of years, the Marcellus shale drilling boom came through western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, and people just lost their minds. They are like, we just want to buy everything that has mineral rights. And I'm like, well, I, I really don't care about mineral rights unless I'm going to get a check out of it. So I called the company that was drilling in the area and they said, Oh, we've already explored your Valley. We're not going to drill down there. There's just, it's just lucrative enough for us. So I was able to do very well on my initial investment and roll that over into a 40 acre piece. Nice. Well, that's good. And, uh, and then you, then that's when you started playing around with some uh, habitat improvement and land management practices. Yeah, I did a little bit on the first property, but I didn't have much equipment. I started out with, you know, just a chainsaw and a rake and trying to put little honey hole plots in here and there. And then uh, I purchased a tiller to pull behind my little lawn tractor. Well, the thing's just made for a garden. It's not really made for farming, but I, I sure thought I was doing the greatest thing in the world, putting these quarter acre green plots and and they worked i mean we had deer coming into them yeah so so you this 40 acres how how let's see you had you bought it in how 2011 2011 okay so 2011 you got this property uh and now you've had it for roughly i'm uh, sorry i'm sorry 2013 i bought the 40 acres okay so you're almost coming up on five years of that property um right um have you have you been successful on that property? A lot of good deer coming through that area. There are there are a lot of a lot of nice bucks. It's all farm. It's all um, corn and soybean country around my area. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of corn and soybeans, and it's it's pretty flat country there where I'm at, which has been a big challenge for me also because I'm used to hunting rolling hills and pinch points and funnels, and there's just there's not a lot of that up there. Right. 
right? So it's uh, in in Ohio, it's more like ag ground with what like very small blocks of timber, right? But the the blocks of timber are about equal to the the, the fields too. I mean, it's it's not very populated up in this area, so got a good chunk of woods and and mixed in with the agriculture. Okay. And obviously there's uh better deer in that area than in uh in the part of Pennsylvania where you're hunting. No question. I mean, we have some big bucks right around where I live here, but uh I I don't think as as consistently and in the numbers that I have up there because there's just not that many people. It's just not that populated. There's not that many, as many people hunting them. Right. So are you still uh are you still hunting trad at your Ohio farm? Not so much. Not so much since I've since I've been seeing these deer that are there and the and the more improvements that I've made, the more mature bucks I have hanging around and it's it's just I I don't want to limit myself. I shouldn't say it like that because there's guys that are fantastic trad shots that could shoot deer thirty yards every day. But that's not me. I'm I'm 43 now i've got a full-time job i've got kids i've got kids activities i just don't have the time to dedicate to it that i used to and i want to be able to comfortably take a 35 yard shot at a mature deer if i have to right and that's kind of why you're transitioning back from trad equipment into the compound right exactly gotcha. so i mean have you had any success or luck on this uh, ohio farm since you purchased it killed some does uh, passed a lot of younger deer and had some close calls. I, I had two close calls last year and I just, they just didn't give me a shot. And, and it's just, I'm just holding out for, for a mature buck. Gotcha. So what's mature in your world? Well, the ideal thing would be to shoot a 130, 140. Uh, I've, I've, shot, I've been fortunate to shoot just a few over Pope and Young, uh, not many. But, uh, you know, something comes by 130s, 140 would make me super happy. Now, there are occasionally bigger ones taken in that area, but it's it's not consistent. I, I would say 140 is probably a good solid buck for that area. Gotcha. Okay. So now, I mean, what's next? You got, you got this 40 acres. You've been hunting it. You're kind of, you're kind of holding out for that right buck, um, if that buck doesn't come, are you are you okay with eating eating your tag every year? Oh, yeah. I've been doing doing a lot of that, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I uh, I think I went five years of passing deer I probably shouldn't have passed to hunt one specific buck or some really high caliber deer when I probably should have shot some of these ones that I was passing. But um, sure, uh, but but I kind of get, you know, I, I was okay with it because I enjoyed, yeah, me too. I, I enjoyed hunting that, that caliber of deer or that specific deer. Um, I'm not doing that anymore because I, you know, I feel that that there's a time and place for that. I had my time and place with it. I'm not really looking to get back into that unless there is a specific deer that sparks my interest, but these days man first four-year-old that walks by will probably get a shot at him yeah that's the great thing about hunting it's like what we've been talking about it, it's, it's not a static thing for everybody it's these transitions where we transition into different stages and, and you can go forward backwards it doesn't matter that's what makes it great absolutely absolutely well i tell you what i really appreciate you taking time to uh hop on the podcast today and uh chat with us through I guess your your entire hunting career. Yeah. Appreciate you having me. And there you have it, guys. We're done. It's the weekend. Uh, everybody, wherever you're at, stop what you're doing and start your weekend right now. Uh, I give you permission. Go tell your boss that. Anyway, huge shout out to Brian. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. Huge shout out to each and every one of you for downloading and listening and continuing to listen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I never thought it would go this far. I really, really, truly thank you. Other than that, um, huge shout out to the partners of this podcast. We have Deer Lab. Ripcord, Exodus, Wasp, 
Ozonics, Lone Wolf, Ripcord Arrow Rests, Exodus Trail Cameras, I lost my place, Bighorn Outfitters, Wasp Broadheads and Gearhead Bows and Lone Wolf. I think I've said them all now. So please go out and support those companies because they support me. And uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty pumped up. I got my first one-star review on iTunes today. And that means that I've really inspired somebody to uh, take that step and give me a one-star review. So whoever you are, good luck this season. And remember to wear your safety harness because that's... That's really important. (laughs) But be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. A lot is going to be coming down the pipe, guys, here pretty soon. There's going to be a little bit of a transition. There's going to be some changes with this feed. It's going to be for the better, and uh, it's going to involve... You know, some of the other podcasts that are on this uh, feed, like the Land and Legacy podcast, the DIY Sportsman's podcast, and coming very soon, the Transition Wild podcast, along with the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, and there's going to be more to come. So guys, it is the hunting season. Please be safe and wear your damn safety harness.